We'll read the text now, Genesis 25, verses 19 to 35. Hear the word of God. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Jacob and Esau were two very different characters. One loved the outdoors, wild game, the adventure of testing his strength and resourcefulness in the wild, like anybody who still has a trailer out there in the rain. And the other liked to stick around in town more, in the comforts of his home, where life was more stable. These kinds of differences continue to exist today, and when you look in the photo directory, I don't know if you knew that, but I've been studying, you can see everybody has their hobbies down. If you go through, you see that everybody has different hobbies. Some like the outdoors, some like to be more in town. And our text does not say that the person with the clean car and the manicured yard who is active in their community is, is better or is more godly than the person who loves to take his gun and his fishing rod and his truck and go out into the bush for a while where there are no toilets or showers. That's not the main difference in our text. Esau is not condemned 
because he thought that a good bow hunter doesn't need to take some backup food in case he gets skunked, nor is Jacob praised because he never faced this question. The difference between the two sons is, is a more fundamental difference. God has called each of us to different tasks and he has given each of us different interests, but we see from our text that the, that the important difference is the difference of the hearts. God is always looking at our hearts. How important are spiritual matters in your life? How important is the church and God's promise and salvation in your life? You can open your Bibles, and, and you should, to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 16. We have a summary of our text in that place. Hebrews 12, verse 16. You could keep your finger on in Genesis as well. But if you look in Hebrews 12, verse 16, you read a summary of our text. And there we read, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. You see the difference that the Holy Spirit is focusing on? He sold his spiritual inheritance for a meal. And when we look at the context, we see why this was such a big deal. Jacob and Esau were the only two people in the world who could continue the line of the church. And of these two people, one of them was not interested. Esau didn't care about God's promise to Abraham and to Isaac, which was evidence, says Romans 9, that he was not elect to salvation. Romans 9 teaches us that this difference in spirituality between Esau and Jacob is related to God's electing pleasure. And the amazing thing is not that Esau joined the rest of the world in rejecting God, and that Jacob, but that Jacob didn't. The amazing thing is that Jacob remained faithful to God. And as we look at how God gathers and defends and preserves his church, since the time of the patriarchs, we can also learn how we came to be here today, how we came to be in the church, and how it is possible that we who are here today, we don't want to be like Esau. How can that be? The text tells us, the text, our text today is, is a message of God's amazing grace to undeserving sinners. And I preach to you this, this gospel under the following theme, God chose you for the same reason he chose Jacob over Esau, undeserved grace. You'll see God's grace is evident in, in our birth, in our election, and in our faith. So if you look back now to your text in Genesis 25, you could see the context, maybe you know the context in chapters 12 to 21, 22, that God spoke to Abraham, a very old man, and his old barren wife, <clears throat> and he said that the church would grow through their children. That's the story of Abraham and Sarah and their son Isaac. And, and if you know the story, but if you don't, you should read it. But if you know the story, you know that how, how long Abraham and Sarah 
were waiting <clears throat> for a child, and they even <clears throat> acted foolishly to try help God so that they could have the child. They wanted this child so bad. And how amazing it is to read then in the first verse of, of our text, this is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. There's a long story behind that verse. Who could forget that beautiful moment when, when Isaac was out there in the field? You can see at the end of chapter 24, and, and there comes his bride, Rebecca. That whole story behind that, how, how Abraham spent all his money. He sent his servant out to another country. He had to find a faithful wife for his, his only son, he cared so much about the church. He, he got Isaac, and, or Rebecca for Isaac, and the two came together, and, and they went into his mother's tent. He took, him, took her home as his wife. Such a story is, is being just summarized in verses 19 and 20. But then we get to verse 21. This beautiful, faithful servant was barren. All that work that Abraham did and now Isaac has a barren wife. Isaac would have to depend on God's grace and God's favor for the next generation. Like Abraham, maybe Isaac, or, or we should say that another way, like Abraham, Isaac may have believed the promise and urgently desired a child to continue the line of the promise. He loved the church. He, he, wanted, it, he wanted it to continue. But God tells him, if the Messiah is to be born in your line, he would only be born because of God's grace and in God's time. Today, we do not always know the reasons, God's reasons for not giving some of us children when we want and why he does give children to others, whether naturally or, or through adoption. But one thing we do know very well is that children are a blessing from God that we, we should not take for granted. We can see God's grace in every child that we can call our own, that, that we baptize, that we can raise in the promises. And Isaac knew this. Isaac knew that God gives life and children. And so from the age of 40 to the age of 60, he prayed. He prayed for a child. You could see that in verse 20. He married Rebecca when he was 40. And in verse 26, he was 60 when the baby was born. 20 years he waited and he prayed. And you read that he prayed on behalf of his wife. The wording here probably means together with his wife before his wife. And as Isaac and Rebekah aged, they, they pleaded with God. And we read that the Lord answered his prayer. That's verse 21. The Lord answered his prayer. The wording here makes clear that God was entreated, that the prayers had an effect. The point is that this pleading had an effect, that God used those prayers as a means through which he would pour out his blessing on his church. It's like James 5, the prayer of a righteous man is effective. And so Rebecca becomes pregnant and she finds out that's not that easy. It's a challenge for a mother to, have, to be pregnant. Twins 
is even more of a challenge. And if the twins are really jostling, and the word in the Hebrew is very strong, they're crushing each other, that makes it almost unbearable for the mother. And experiencing that pain in childbearing that God promised when Adam and Eve fell into sin, Rebecca asks, why is this happening to me? She means, if this is what it means to be a mother, why am I even alive? Now we have to see Rebecca's position. She was in a very unique position. The very existence of the church being developed from parents to their children depended on her, depended on, on the birth of this child. God was using mother, was using Rebecca to bring the church to the next stage. And here she was in, in this bitter anguish, twins fighting in her womb. You can almost see Satan seeing the weak spot in the link and trying to kill the mother, trying to kill the baby to pre prevent the coming Messiah. So it was only by God's grace that Rebecca survived, that the births, that the babies came to term. And we see then as well that God, is, God sustains the faithful mothers that he uses to bring the next generation into the world. They have a noble and a difficult task. The, the Bible really highlights that here in Genesis. It's not easy to be the instruments of God's grace in a corrupt and fallen world. And when we see it this way, we realize how it is God's grace alone that we're born. Because God showed his grace to your mother, you may be here today. We see how God is working through the generations in his grace. The first verses of our text highlight the grace of God that is evident in, in every aspect of Jacob's birth. The Lord finally granted Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. He blessed the finding of a wife for Isaac. He heard Isaac's prayers on behalf of his barren wife. He gave Isaac a double blessing of twins. He preserved Rebekah's life during the whole pregnancy. Then he preserved Jacob and Esau's life, and even though they were fighting in the womb. And he graciously placed Jacob and Esau in this believing family. The two boys, one named Esau, and you can see in the note, it probably means uh, Harry or may mean Harry. And Jacob, whose name means heel, these two boys, Harry and Heel, were both circumcised, put in the covenant, and they were given the responsibilities of being covenant children. Every birth is the result of a long history of God's providential care through the generations. And when we read Romans 9, you could see how important that birth was at the beginning. Through all these people, through Israel, through Jacob, through all these descendants, we come to to Christ. And we see the depth of the grace of God in the birth of this little, these two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And then we could see how our births, the fact that we are born, is also linked to this birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're descendants of Abraham because we're a part of the line of the promise. And we stand amazed 
We can see that our birth is a result of the grace of God. Just the fact that we were born, that we know who Jesus Christ is, that's grace. Overwhelming grace. Think, think of what could have been. And then to make it very clear that none of this is just a matter of chance, God explains everything very clearly to Isaac and his family before the twins are even born. The two covenant children, Esau and Jacob, were probably told about the promise. God would preserve his church through the younger one. That's what we see in the second point. God's grace is evident in our election. Rebecca, we read, went to inquire of the Lord. It was all this jostling and crushing inside her womb. She wanted to know what was happening. But we don't know what it means exactly that she went to inquire of the Lord. If you look at this time in the history of Revelation, later on, we know that Saul and his servant would, would go to the seer. They would inquire of the Lord by going to a seer. And they could even ask about mundane things like, where are the donkeys that we, we lost? But who was the prophet or who was the seer at the time when Rebekah was in this anguish? It would probably be her, her husband, the patriarch, the leader of the church. And perhaps she went to him or perhaps she, she prayed to the Lord. And then we read the prophecy, verse 23. And you can see this prophecy that appears to be something spoken. It, it even comes across quite poetic. It's brief. It's a bit ambiguous. It can mean different things. But nonetheless, it was clear enough for the mother to understand. What does God reveal? What does this prophecy mean? When God tells Rebekah that there are two nations in her womb... He is letting her know, first of all, that she has twins. I don't think there was ultrasounds and that sort of technology at that time. And second, she was told that both her twins would survive. She would be the mother of two nations that would separate one from the other. She was told that both her children would grow to be important, but only one would be used by God to continue the line of the promise. You'll see that if you look back in, in Genesis, this isn't a new idea. God said the same to Noah. God spoke the same to Abraham. So God is revealing here that he will continue to maintain the church through just one of the sons of, of the patriarchs. This does not mean that the son of the nation that was not chosen would be excluded from the promises, but it means that in order to participate in the promise of the Messiah, he would have to serve the other. So the older would have to serve the younger. And that was a surprising thing. In Romans 9, the Holy Spirit makes it clear that the fact that this prophecy was spoken before either of them was born, it highlights the grace of God. Everything that is happening here is God's decision, God's wisdom, God's grace. There was nothing in Jacob that indicated that he was better than his brother Esau. It was before they were born. God's election is not based on foreseen faith or obedience. Election is a result of God's good pleasure. In the same way when we talk about our election. The fact that we are here, we can only talk 
about God's grace. The text asks that question. Do you think that you were born into your family and that you're now a part of this church because you are better than the rest of the world? Is that what you think? That's not how God works. He didn't work that way with Jacob and he doesn't work that way with you. And although left on your own, you also could be easily live or could easily be living a worldly life or even be a criminal. You are here today because of God's grace, God's pleasure, his good pleasure and will. You are here because of God's decision in spite of who you are, in spite of your sinful desires. That's why God receives all the glory, all the glory today and forevermore. And that's what Paul wants to emphasize in his letter to the Romans, in which he addresses both Gentiles and Jews, the, the natural descendants of Jacob. He says, yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. You are told, the older will serve the younger. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Paul highlights that part of Genesis 25 where God says the older will serve the younger. The whole passage, that's a little part that he chooses to, to highlight the point because those words make it very clear that God's choice is not a result of man's ability, not even his position, but totally God's mercy. Even if one would argue that Jacob tried to be born first as he was jostling in the womb, the fact is that he wasn't able to decide. He was born second. Therefore, he had no claims upon this spiritual inheritance, no claims to, to be the next patriarch. Any mercy he received had to be a result of God's grace, God's intervention. The description of the, the birth highlights the apparent strength of Esau, who was hairy all over like a, a hairy garment. It's hypertrichosis. Even happens today. Children born when the hair on their skin doesn't fall off and, and they're born hairy all over. He was born all hairy. He was named Esau. He was, came across, he's presented as a stronger of the two. And then you see Jacob, who is presented as the crafty one. He may not have won that battle in the womb, but he still held on. Sometimes when you're fighting on the, end of a pool, on the edge of a pool, that happens. The, the stronger pushes the, the smaller one in, and then just as he's falling, he grabs your heel and takes the big one in too. Jacob was like that. He was holding the heel. That's an expression. It means crafty. Esau was born before Jacob. Later in his life, he showed himself to be stronger than Jacob. But even so, Jacob, whom his parents called heel, who God later calls, you can see that in Isaiah 41, God calls him a worm. That's the one that God chose. 
Jacob is the line through whom the Savior would be born. And Jacob would have no reason to boast ever. And we hear that as descendants of Jacob. Undeserved grace. It it abounds in the church. You can travel all over the world. That's what the church is celebrating. It's the theme of our song. It's the only thing that binds us all together in fellowship. That's what brings us all together. That's what we share in. Every day, we get up in the morning, we look in, in the mirror, and we look at our lives, and we say, we can see how forgiven we are, how transformed we are. Gentle. We're, we're loving, we're gentle, and we ask, how is this possible? I know who I am inside. And when you talk to an unbeliever, when you compare your lives with, with criminals and, and you see the depth of the law, when you know that you've killed too in your thoughts, when you hear the law, you, you see who you are. You know you are the weaker, you are the younger, you are the crafty one who even tries to hide his sins before the Almighty God. You are weak. You are not an obvious choice for God to use to build his church. You are probably surprised that you can do anything for the glory of God in this world. And you are right on your own. You are here because of God's grace. We are here together because of God's grace. You're not here because you are better than others. You are here because God decided to put you here. The almighty, most holy, most gracious creator of heaven and earth decided to put you here. Grace. And he didn't place you here because of your good works, but he did place you here so that you might do good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. That's how Paul says it. You see that God's grace is evident in faith. And so Jacob and Esau grew up. They showed that they were two different characters with different lifestyles and different areas of interest. The Holy Spirit mentions that Isaac loved Esau and that Rachel loved Jacob. Now, whether it was her motherly instinct to compensate for Isaac's insensitivity or her belief in God's promise, Rachel loved Jacob. But then the Holy Spirit leaves no doubt concerning Isaac's carnal motives. Isaac liked the taste of the wild game. And Esau could put it on his table And Jacob couldn't. God's prophecy about Jacob was not that important to Isaac. It seems that if you look at Genesis 27, that he even intended to ignore what God had had said to Rebekah about Jacob. And so Esau was never encouraged by his father to care about what God had said about his inheritance. Isaac 
never encouraged his children, his son, to think about what God had promised about his inheritance. Isaac was a patriarch only by the grace of God. And his sinful attitude appears to have really been a concern to Jacob because Jacob thought the birthright was important. So what is this birthright? It seems to be the main issue in, in all this discussion. The birthright is the privilege of the firstborn son which gave him authority to serve as God's prophet who revealed God's will to the family, to be the shepherd who would guide the family of God in the land of promise as a king, and God's priest who sacrificed to God in the hope of a Messiah. That was what the birthright was about. It was a guarantee of covenant succession in your family and in your name. And you could see a bit of what Jacob was desiring when you look at Genesis 27, verses 27 to 29, the actual blessing. And so once again, we see God's grace, not only in the birth of Jacob, not only in his election, but also in his desire to have what God promised. His desire to be a patriarch in the line of the promise with the Messiah as his child. His faith is evidence of God's grace. His faith is a fruit of the election because election drives Christians to action. If someone is chosen by God, he will not be inert or unresponsive or lazy or passive or complacent or ungrateful with the promises. In the same way that God's promise to Abraham led Isaac to patiently wait and pray for a son, so also God's promise to Rebekah about her children led Jacob to action. And he was looking at his father. His father didn't seem to understand. He, he wanted to do something. He had a responsive faith to the promise. He, he was, this is an evidence of God's grace. This is it just shows the, the reality of his election, his desire to take hold of the promises. That's what's in the background between this encounter between Jacob and Esau in the field. We read that Esau came in after some time in the open country. He was exhausted. He was famished. There's some evidence that at that time the hunters even used to chase down the game to tire them out until they, they could nail him with a, a rock or an arrow. Apparently, Esau missed, and apparently he hadn't brought any backup food, and so he came home famished. And as he comes in, he sees Jacob making his supper, and he sees some red stuff. He says, please, a quick drink from the red, this red. That's how it's in the Hebrew. It just repeats red, red. I'm famished. And that repetition of the, the, the color red, in, in Hebrew, the word is Adam. And his focus on this food leads him to be called Edom, red. And that's fitting because that's exactly what was in his mind. That's all he could, he could think about. And it actually reveals his biggest problem. When Jacob insists that he sell him his birthright before eat, eating, Esau is too hungry to care. Red 
is a man who lives for the moment. His thought is the red food, survival, not some spiritual fluff about birthrights and spiritual inheritance. He wants red stew, food. Now you might defend our adventurous Esau because you know how hard it is to think about church when you're starving, hungry, and then someone has some soup and buns in front of you. But verse 34 shows that the situation is very serious. Verse 34 is the background of Hebrews 12, verse 16. That's where we read, Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. Esau's attitude didn't change after he ate. Those last words, then he got up and left, are the incriminating words. It shows that he didn't really care about God says, about what his life could be. He, he doesn't care about the covenant promises. He doesn't believe that God would be able to bless him even if he were to die. He doesn't think about his children or his grandchildren. He thinks about himself. He thinks about what he wants, what he likes to do. Jacob was willing to go hungry in exchange for the promised inheritance. Esau sold the birthright for a meal of lentils. He was called by what he valued most, red stew, and showed himself to be unfit to be the heir and the possessor of the promised grace. Hebrews warns us that this focus on earthly things is godlessness. Esau traded his place in the church, the place of his descendants, for a single meal. He was nicknamed Red after the food that he ate at the cost of eternal blessing with God. Here was a covenant child raised in the church who did not embrace his inheritance but loved this world more than the riches of his, of his birthright, and he showed that he was not elected to salvation by the priorities in his life. Faith is the fruit of election, and faith is visible in the priorities of your life, and now we're all thinking about ourselves. Who's in the center? Are you another red, obsessed with personal pleasures from wherever they may come from? How are you known in the world? As a Christian, or do you have another nickname? Maybe not red for food, but maybe sports. Willing to give up church and faith life because of sports. Or maybe, maybe family. Family over everything mama. Or maybe beauty obsessed. Or maybe Hollywood. Every, you know, every actor and every song. And you can't actually sing one of our psalms. Or maybe always gone fishing. Or maybe all my money spent on holidays might not be red, 
But where's your focus? Anyone, man, woman, or child, who denies the faith, denies the church, denies the, the inheritance that we have for, for, for earthly, temporary pleasures, needs to repent. Those priorities are showing a, a big problem. And parents and young people, let us not become complacent. Let us not become materialist. Let us not lose our focus on the Messiah. Let the Spirit work in your hearts through the Word so that your desire, that you desire true and lasting life, eternal joy in the presence of your Father. And fathers, like Isaac, who find the, the company of his adventuresome son more enjoyable than his, his serious son who, who thinks about the promises, you fathers can be confusing. This life is more than about you. And the passage is screaming that out. God's grace is evident in the fact that you were born in this church, that God chose you, and that you want to show, you want to embrace those promises above everything else. And so we return to the beginning. We return to our photo directory one more time. We all have different hobbies. We all have different interests. There are those who hunt and there are those who garden. There are people who like to dress up in fancy clothes and spend an evening in a nice restaurant and others who are just as happy in a pair of jeans sitting around a, a fire eating meat straight off that fire. And those differences aren't actually that important. What's important is what you're willing to give, what you're willing to sell to have those moments. And look at what we have. You could say we have a lot to sell. Look at our spiritual inheritance. Look what we were singing in Psalm 65. Spiritual blessings, satisfying each one of us. We've had a lot of baptisms lately. We could hear the promises, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, pouring down upon us God's grace, eternal life, forgiveness, God's grace to, to weak and undeserving sinners. And that's where the rubber hits the road. Do you see what you have? And God encourages and, and calls us, don't, don't give that up for anything here on the earth, in the world. Look at what you have. Look at God's grace. And then you look at your life and you say, I know. I know. That's why I'm here. I love it. I love my spiritual inheritance. I love to sing songs together with other believers. I love to grow up together. <clears throat> but why is that? Why is it that I love to be here? Why is it that I don't want to be an Esau? We know. Amazing grace, undeserved mercy, eternal love. May God be praised forever and ever with the lips of our mouth. Amen.